Ready? Yeah. Good evening. Welcome to the October 3rd Lawrence City Commission meeting. It's a great crowd tonight. We've got some special guests on several fronts. So we're, we'll go ahead and get started with Sherry, our city clerk, giving a few instructions. Thank you, Mayor, and good evening, everyone. If you are attending this meeting via Zoom, please ensure you are muted and your video is off when you are not actively participating in the meeting. This allows the active meeting participants to be seen on screen. If you have any trouble, you can send a chat, and all chats go directly to the meeting host. The city reserves the right to mute people or turn individual videos off to minimize distractions during the meeting. This meeting is being recorded and broadcast on the city's YouTube channel and cable channel 25. When the mayor calls for public comment, those attending in person should approach the podium to indicate they wish to speak. Those participating via Zoom should use the raise hand function to indicate they wish to speak. Please leave your virtual hand raised until you are called on. Participants will be called on in the order they appear on the meeting host screen. Please state your name before speaking, and all comments will be limited to three minutes. Thank you, Sherry. We will start with A, item A, which is to approve the agenda. The City Commission reserves the right to amend, supplement, or reorder the agenda during the meeting. Is there any commissioner that would like to change the agenda? Move to approve the agenda. Second. I got a first and a second. All in favor? Aye. 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 It's five to zero. Commissioner Sellers is on Zoom tonight with us. Okay, on to item B, which is our rec recognitions. We'll start with uh, recognition from with our students from Oiteen is here are here tonight, and um, looking forward to hear what um, Bill has to say. Guten Abend, Frau Bürgermeisterin und die Mitglieder des Stadtrats. Uh, I'm very happy to be here tonight and happy that you decided to have a city commission meeting to celebrate the 33rd anniversary wow. of the unification of Germany, which is today. This is the 4th of July in Germany, in United Germany, the east and west part. So let's have a round of applause. Yes. For and we're also celebrating many anniversaries uh, as you well know, we established a sister city relationship with Eutin, Germany in 1989. But two years prior to that, I want to recognize a young man who's with us tonight, Mike Amix, <laughs> who, as mayor in 1987, signed a proclamation together with a key to the city of Lawrence to unlock our hearts and sent it to Eutin, inviting them to check us out and they did the next year. They sent two students, checked us out, and within a year, we were married, sister cities. Well, excuse my yeah. <laughs> language. In, in any event, we're very, very happy uh, after over, I'm gonna guess, 600 young people participating in the exchanges since 1990 when we sent our first group of students over. We have 12 young women with us tonight representing the two high schools in Eutin and they're accompanied by their chaperone, Philip Loza, a, a teacher in the city of Eutin and I would like to introduce him to introduce his students. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Ja, 
guten Abend auch von meiner Seite. No, um, okay. Can I help you? That's the, the wrong way. Wrong way. Okay. Ignore me. I, I, I'm trying, but... <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, do I have a couple of minutes? Um, sure, okay. go right yeah. ahead. Uh, firstly, I would, uh, I would like to thank everyone for inviting us to City Hall this evening. Uh, it's a somewhat special evening for, for Germans. Um, I've, I think I've never spent uh, our, our 4th of July abroad, uh, so this will be the first time. I have no idea what was going on today at home uh, because of the time difference, but um, thank you for reminding us that it's uh, the 3rd of October. Um, it's been so much going on that we kind of sometimes um, lose track of what time it is and what is going on at home. At least that's the case for me. Um, I'm sure that I speak on behalf of all students if I say that we are very excited um, to once again have been granted the opportunity to be here, um, to spend time in Lawrence, Kansas, and have the opportunity to reunite with so many people that we had the chance uh, to meet thanks to the Sister City um, program. Um, I've been here the second time now. Last time was five years ago. Uh, I've met so many people um, that I assume I, I'm allowed to say that mo many of them turn friends. Uh, it, it's so exciting to see them uh, once again. Um, yeah, last time I came here as a complete stranger and everything was new to me, and now I feel already like uh, I've, I'm meeting so many friends uh, again, which is exciting. Um, I'm pretty sure this exchange will have an overwhelming experience, uh, um, an overwhelming impact on the students, uh, a lifelong impact um, that will change their lives forever, and we are so grateful that you have given us the opportunity uh, to participate. Um, to learn a little bit of way to my claim, I would like to briefly share an anecdote from last week. Uh, it's not going to be long. Um, my host parents had, a, had invited a group of German friends um, that happened to be in Lawrence uh, at the time, and a lot of American friends joined. In the course of the evening, more and more people came to their backyard, and we sat together, um, and then all of a sudden, uh, during the evening, two strangely familiar faces showed up. Uh, it was a former student of mine from my team, oh, wow. uh, and it was his host uh, brother from six years ago. Uh, they still keep in touch. And we were not expecting to see each other. I said, I don't know you. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a great experience, and this shows to me the impact and the importance of this exchange. Um, there are so many lifelong friendships that have been formed by this exchange um, that I think it's um, a very special opportunity. And we hope to add another chapter to this uh, long-standing legacy uh, of creating new friendships. Um, finally, we would like to um, take the opportunity to say thank you um, for the many people who have made this experience possible. Uh, we would like to thank all the American host families for being such amazing hosts. Um, some of our students said this is the best family that I could have imagined uh, to stay with. Um, they are making so much possible for us. Thank you very much. We would like to thank Stephen Abo and Arne Scholz, both teachers from Alistair uh, and the Free State, um, for their support and advice in organizing everything. Uh, without them, it wouldn't have been possible. And we would lastly and especially like to thank the members of the Sister City Advisory Board and the City Commission of Lawrence for their support of the program. Thank you very much. And we are looking forward to welcoming you to XT18 next year. Dankeschön. Excellent. Thank you. now uh, get the students to the front. Okay. Sure. Um, Stella. <laughs> this is... Okay. So this is Stella uh, Moose from OIT. And you introduced the next one, right? Yeah. 
Hi, I'm Stella Moos. I'm 16 years old and I'm really happy to be here and to experience all the differences we can uh, compare to Germany. And I'm really grateful and thankful for the opportunity this Partner City program gave us. Yeah. The next. Thank you. Uh, the next is Lotta. Lotta. Oh. <laughs> they get to pick. They get to pick who's next. Uh oh. <laughs> Hello. So I'm Lotta. And I'm also from Routine. Mm -hmm. And my favorite part of being here is uh, the way people treat each other in the city. They are pretty kind and are very interested in our stories, our life at home, and also in me as a person, but also showing me the way you live your life here. And I was really enjoying going to different sports and also the school sports, also the college ones. And yeah, I really appreciate being here. And I'm so grateful that this program have been there since such a long time. And I'm so glad that I was able to be a part of this. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, hi, I'm Leana Kash, also from my team. Um, it was always a dream for me to come here, so that's what I'm grateful, thankful for, and um, thanks for my host family to do so many stuff with me. Um, I always wanted to experience the high school life, that's what I did now, and yeah, thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Hello, I'm Annika Bernau, also 16, and from Malente near Eutin. And I just wanted to say thank you for giving me this opportunity to experience all of this and meeting so many new people and getting so many new friends through this exchange. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, I'm Elche Kalke, or also Ella. I'm also 16 years old and from Schaboitz, it's near 18. And I'm so glad to be here because I got to experience the high school life, as Liana said. And I'm just amazed by the classes and I love going to them and just listening to the teachers because they're so cool. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thank you. Hello, my name is Sarah Bonin from Eutin. Um, I'm really grateful for being part of this exchange and experiencing the daily life as a teenager in the United States, especially in this town. Um, and yeah, I hope this exchange will continue existing for a long time. Hello, my name is Eni Marlene Kelting. I'm 60 years old and I'm so thankful for staying here. And especially thank you to my host family. They were so kind to me these last days. And yeah, hopefully this continues. <laughs> Hello, I'm Barbara West. I'm also 16 years old and also from my team. Um, I'm very thankful that we have this opportunity to be here and 
I really enjoy my time here. Also, big thanks to my host family. I really, really love my host parents and also my host exchange student. <laughs> and I really enjoy my time here. We are doing a lot of fun stuff and it's great here in America. Thank you. Hello, um, I'm Merle Plumbeck. I'm also 16 and I'm from Schaboitz, which is near to um, Eutin. And I'm really f thankful for my host family. They are like the best I could have imagined. And I'm also thankful that I got to try American fries because they are so <laughs> much better fries. than the German ones. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Larissa von Bredo. Um, I'm very happy to be here and I already love all the people I've met. And Lawrence is a very, very nice city. I really love it here already. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, um, I'm Svante Traving and I want to thank the Sister City program because it not only supports the connection between Lawrence and Eutin, but also between us students, Germany and the United States. And I'm really thankful for being here and for my really, really nice host parents. I love them so much. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hey, hi, I think I'm the last one. I'm Ida Frenzel, and yeah, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to um, let me be a part of this exchange. I'm really grateful for that, um, especially meeting so many people. I met, a, uh, I met great people so far, and I'm really glad to see them all here and that they include us so well. Um, so thank you for that. <laughs> So is that everybody? That's everybody. Well, thank you very much for coming tonight. We still have a few proclamations to go, but I do want to just add that I had the grand opportunity to go to OIT in 2019, I think it was. And it was, uh, it, it still really rings true with my heart. It was a great, great trip, and I would recommend anybody to go go do that trip. Um, yeah, it changed my mind about a lot of things uh, about our city and, and, and what we do and how we treat others. So thank you very much. Picture. Oh, yes. We have all the students come up and just stand up here and get a photo. <laughs> I was supposed to go for the food event. Yeah. That's You go first. All right, I'm looking here.
One more. <laughs> all right. All right. Thank you all. Thank you. It's too funny. Too funny. All right, we'll let the folks get out the door before we go on. Real strong. They're doing it right now, <laughs> unfortunately, for us. Good quotes for sure. Yeah, they do love Walmart when they come from other countries. They'll be done eating pizza before we even get through it. Yeah. 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 All right, we will go on to our second recognition, which is a proclamation to claim the second month, second Monday in the month of October 2023 as Indigenous Peoples Day. Do we have, I believe we've got Darlene Bell and Sierra Tubles. Good evening. Uh, my name is D.R. Lynn Bell, and I'm here with my colleague, Sierra Tubles. Um, and I want to read a statement about the Indigenous Community Center. The Indigenous Community Center is an anti-colonial LLC social enterprise dedicated to intertribal and interracial and cross-class solidarity to empower the local Native American community. We were established three years ago through conversations with community members to explore how to better serve Native American people in and around the Douglas County area. Um, the IIC created an all-volunteer five-member uh, board, which now includes myself, D.R. Lynn Bell, Sierra Tubles, who is uh, with me tonight, Crystal C uh, Bradshaw-Gonzalez, and Robert Hicks, Jr. Um, since its inception, the ICC has overseen dozens of community projects, including advocacy for missing, murdered, and indigenous people, um, uh, reproductive rights, native visibility and representation, self-care events, youth mentorship, promoting local native artists and businesses, um, and agricultural, agriculture and indigenous science. Um, we have always been open to meeting the needs of the community as they arise um, and continually explore how to build community with like minds. Um, so we want to kind of formally announce publicly that we are trying to get back to our roots, our original roots, by focusing on community organizing and collective action. So going forward, we intend to be a connector for anyone in the community to get involved in efforts to support and encourage Native American empowerment and visibility. We want to help facilitate relationships to help create more organizations, nonprofits, and projects to help meet the uh, community needs and um, uh, eradicate native erasure. Um, we invite community members to please contact us if you have creative ideas, even if they're not that far along, um, to do more community work um, and advocacy for local natives and BIPOC people. Um, so please get in touch with us on Facebook or uh, um, through our website or, or any of our socials. And um, we welcome opportunities to have more community conversations about more projects and more, uh, more work. Um, and finally, we just want to formally and also publicly say we are recruiting for new board members. If you're interested, please contact us. Yes. Good day, everyone. I'm Sierra Tubles. I'm speaking on like why we celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day. The question is, 
why not? Why not celebrate it? Uh, for Lawrence, has been celebrating, or at least recognizing Indigenous Peoples Day since 2015. I do remember that because I was here, and uh, it was a big moment for us in the Native community. It was of such an honor. But like, what's the point of Indigenous Peoples Day? Is what maybe uh, the question comes up every year, and you know, uh, Daryl and I are just one of many Indigenous people that know why we celebrate it, and I don't want to sugarcoat it. Why, <laughs> but. It's really in lieu of Columbus Day. No one in the United States should be celebrating Columbus Day. And so that's why Indigenous Peoples Day was created. And it's been around for a long time. There are places uh, in the United States that have actually recognized it as Native American Day, um, where my home state is in South Dakota. It's been recognizing it as long as I've been born. So uh, for Lawrence and here in, as, a, as a city, recognizing since 2015, I mean, it's, it's come a long way. We're not on a federal level just yet. Uh, the state doesn't recognize it uh, fully and we're hoping we can get there. And so what Indigenous Peoples Day really is, it honors the past, the present, and the future of us Native people, us Indigenous people throughout the United States, but even even um, and beyond, because you know, global indigenous populations. And, and it just makes sense because Columbus never was here in the present United States. <laughs> never touched foot here, right? So, um, this holiday is just about recognize, also recognizing the dark legacy and impact of European colonization and settler colonialism, but also celebrates, of course, us indigenous peoples, our cultures, our customs, our contributions to the United States, as well as our resilience for 500 plus years. So why should we celebrate it? Of course, it, it's gonna center our, our visibility and Lawrence, just a part of that history since 2015, um, honoring that. But there's just so much more to do. You know, we are, I do want to say that we are thankful for City of Lawrence to have recognizing it since 2015. But there is much that we need to be that have that needs to be done. More work, not just here on a local level, but the state level, as well as the federal level. And um, as I said earlier, with um, abolishing Columbus Day, you know, ICC, we do recognize Indigenous Peoples Day, but also recognizing that we need to abolish Columbus Day, state level, federal level. And that's one thing that our allies, our non-Native allies can help us do, um, spread the awareness of Indigenous Peoples Day, but also abolishing Columbus Day. I think that's one initiative that still needs to be worked on throughout the United States. So that way, I mean, I don't want to see it on the calendar. I don't want to see Columbus Day on the calendar. I would love to see Indigenous Peoples Day on a national calendar. So uh, without further ado, if uh, you want to support us, of course, support ICC, but also just, um, it, does, it could just be any, any Native person um, here in, in Lawrence and beyond. We do have some upcoming events that ICC has partnered with, and and then there's also other events that's that's going on that we are not partnering with, but we want to recognize them as well. So, upcoming events to celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day on um, October 9th of this year. We have uh, Thursday, October 5th at 10 a.m. There is a um, Sorry, at the Centennial Room, sixth floor in Kansas Union, Alex Redcorn, Dr. Alex Redcorn, who will be giving a lecture on liberating sovereign potential, his uh, critical reflection on how educational systems reinforce settler colonialism and assimilation, and will introduce a model for evaluating and advancing education systems for Native students. Then on Monday, October 9th, the First Nation Student Association at KU, they're going to be um, TP raising, or raising the TP there on Strong Call. We do invite everyone to show up. That's going to be at um, at noon, and then there's a Native student panel in 
the Office of Multicultural Affairs. And then October 10th, there is going to be a a panel on Indian Center, urban Indian centers, and why they're important to um, our communities. And ICC is a part of that. And then um, lastly, the, there are two events in collaboration with the Kansas Department of Wildf Wildlife, Haskell University, Lawrence Public Library, and ha uh, Haskell Extension, of course, us, ICC, uh, October 13th at the Lawrence Public Library, where there's going to be um, drum and community round dance and a screening of a, a, a native film documentary. And then lastly, Saturday, October 14th is the, uh, from 11 to 3 is the foraging identification hike at Haskell and then a wild foods cooking demonstration by uh, Jason, the native chef. So we do want to invite everyone to come to these events and just uh, celebrate us. Wopilatanka. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I'll read the proclamation now. Whereas the city of Lawrence acknowledges that the indigenous peoples of the lands now known as the Americas have resided here since time immemorial, and whereas we recognize that Lawrence, Kansas stands upon the ancestral homelands of the Kanza and Osage indigenous peoples, and whereas Lawrence is proud to be the home of Haskell Indians Nations University, which represents over 120 federally recognized tribes and contributing significantly to our community, and whereas we deeply value the enduring intellectual, spiritual, and cultural contributions of indigenous peoples that have enriched the character of our city. And whereas Indi Indigenous Peoples Day, initially proposed in 1977 by Native Nations to the United Nations, offers an opportunity to reflect upon the diverse struggles of indigenous peoples, acknowledge the historic injustice, justices that they have endured, and celebrate the resilient tra traditions. And whereas the promotion and support of ongoing efforts around equity and justice and for indigenous peoples is critical. Now therefore I, Lisa Larson, mayor of the city of Lawrence, do hereby pro proclaim the second Monday in the month of October as Indigenous Peoples Days in, in the city of Lawrence. And I urge citizens to reflect upon the cultural diverse struggles of indigenous people on this land, to encourage ongoing efforts to reflect the full and accurate history of our place and to celebrate the resilient, culturally diverse indigenous traditions and values in our community. Thank you. Thank you. All right, our next proclamation. Um, we got a lot of special ones tonight. This is definitely um, one of those. This is in recognition of Robbie Steinhardt. Uh, we've got a couple of folks here today that um, have helped put this together. And for those who are not familiar with Robbie, I, you will after I tell you he's, he was um, the founding members of the, the rock band of Kansas. So anybody with a little age on them knows exactly that band. I bet you're thinking of the song right now. I bet you. So um, I offer to come on up here, Glenn and whoever. Good evening. Glenn Carastinos with the Robbie Steinhardt Foundation, Safety Harbor, Florida, 34695. Madam Mayor, City Commission and City Manager and Staff, City Clerk and Staff, and all the other departments within the City of Lawrence, but more importantly, the residents and visitors that come to Lawrence. The Robbie Steinhardt Foundation and the Steinhardt family are honored to present to the City of Lawrence this interactive memorial bronze-coated violin and historic pedestal of Robbie and the band Kansas. 
in memory of Robert Robbie Steinhardt, a Chesty Lion Lawrence High School graduate class of 68. Lawrence's own wayward son, Robbie Steinhardt, a founding member of the band Kansas, original violinist, vocalist, frontman, and proud Jayhawk. Alongside the pedestal, a little rock history with a cause. Own a piece of rock history and support a scholarship for Lawrence School Foundation, which is a platinum album right next to it. You can go on RSFI, period, better world, period, O-R-G. Also, anyone wishing to share information and photos of Robbie Steinhardt, we'd love to hear from you. We're looking for friends, fans, and classmates here from Lawrence through elementary, middle, and high school. And I could be emailed at Robbie71721 at gmail.com. Also, I'd like to add a couple names. Mayor Larson, for your help in making this happen. Former Mayor Shipley for taking the time a year ago to actually walk me up and down Main Street and tell me the history of Lawrence, which for me coming from Boston, Massachusetts and having our own city of Lawrence and understanding how you got your name is absolutely phenomenal. I'd also like to acknowledge Representative Mike Amex who is here with us in the audience, Senator Marcy Francisco for her work in a resolution of 1704 for uh, recognizing Robbie Steinhardt. I'd like to also acknowledge Derek Rogers from the Parks Department along with Porter Arnell and his staff for helping make this accomplish as well and Curtis Marsh of Endowment over at KU. I truly appreciate the warm welcome that we've always received here in Lawrence within coming in the last year and making four or five trips. It's been absolutely phenomenal. I love the, the community that you have here. So in closing, Lawrence is Robbie's forever home. Pioneer Cemetery, KU. Thank you. Thank you. You have a guest with you, too, don't you? A guest, right? Yep. So, yes. I think it's an important guest. I do have a very shy guest. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, come on up, Cindy. So, let me introduce you to Mrs. Cynthia Steinhardt, Robbie's lovely wife. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I will read the proclamation now. Well, first of all, actually, we've got that. We did unveil that. Wow. So what we have before us is a gift from the foundation to the city of Lawrence, to Lawrence. And it is a violin. Do you want to say anything about the violin? I don't know much about it. I'm sorry. So the violin you got, itself is <laughs> Glenn? Wrong. Glenn, you'll need to come up here. I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, yeah, we got to have him on it has camera. To go on the, yeah. I forget. <laughs> Modern times. <laughs> the violin is a bronze-coated violin of uh, what Robbie would practice as a, an instrument. The interactive part is there is a QR code that if you actually click on the QR code, it will open up to uh, one of the famous songs, Carry On, Wayward Son. It is a collage of multiple pictures and 
of years past, as well as some present pictures of Robbie and his time with the band Kansas. And I hope that it will help bring tourism and enlighten people here in Lawrence that one of their own band Kansas came right here from Lawrence. There's a lot of history here in Lawrence. Robbie's dad was a renowned violinist. He was Dr. Milton Steinhardt. He was the chairman of the School of Music History at KU, the first musicologist. Robbie's mom was a pianist. Robbie came from a musical family. He was adopted at the age of four. And it is funny that you have a sister city from the city of, uh, in, in the country of Germany, as Robbie's mom came from Munich, Germany. Wow. So, wow. thank you. Thank you, thank you, Glenn. Okay, I'll read the proclamation now. Whereas Robert Eugene Steinhardt, better known to the world as Robbie Steinhardt, was one of the original founding members of the rock band Kansas, along with his bandmates Phil Ehart of Coffeyville, Carrie Livgren of Topeka, Dave Hope of Topeka, Richard Williams of Topeka, and Steve Walsh of St. Louis, Missouri. And whereas Robbie, born in Chicago, Illinois, was given up for adoption at birth. Milton and Elise Steinhardt adopted him when he was four days old. They moved to Lawrence when Dr. Milton Steinhardt secured a position as professor and chairman of the music history department at the University of Kansas. The first musicologist, and whereas Robbie was raised in Lawrence, where he attended elementary, middle school, and Lawrence High School, where he graduated in 1968. At Lawrence High School, he was concert master in band, and he was first chair in the orchestra. He attended the University of Kansas, always being a proud Jayhawk until his career started with the band Kansas. And whereas the Steinhardt family traveled across the world to explore music, history in Vienna, Austria known as the City of Music. While attending the American International School of Vienna, Robert, Robbie was classically trained in violin. Robbie brought back his knowledge in violin training into the world of rock and roll, thus blazing a new trail for violin's role in popular music. And whereas Robbie's career with the band Kansas spanned from 1973 to 82 and from 97 to 2006. Well known for his wild hair and bold violin style, he was the band's frontman, violinist, and co-singer, co-lead singer. And whereas Robbie's, during Robbie's hiatus from the band Kansas, he played with longtime friend Rick Moon, creating Steinhardt Moon. Before his death, Robbie, alongside with producer Michael Franklin and co-writer Timothy Franklin of Solar Studios, created his first solo album, album Not in Kansas, anymore, which received, oh, sorry, I'm so sorry. Um, before his death, alongside with producer Michael Fra Franklin and co-writer Timothy Franklin of Solar Studios, created his first solo album, Not in Kansas Anymore, which received worldwide recognition. And whereas, above all things, Robbie was proud to have been the father of Rebecca M. Steinhardt and to have been married to the love of his life, Cindy Steinhardt, from 2006 till his death on July 17th of 2021. He was laid to rest with his parents at... Pioneer Cemetery in his hometown of Lawrence and Lawrence. In 2022, the Robbie Steinhardt Foundation was created to continue to honor Robbie's life achievements with a mission to further music education and performing arts in his name. Now, therefore, I, Lisa Larson, Mayor of the City of Lawrence, Kansas, along with my fellow commissioners, do hereby recognize Lawrence's own Wade Worth son, Robbie Steinhardt.
All right, we have one more proclamation. And we have Andrian, Adrian Nunez here with Willow. Yes, hi everyone, sorry, I'm just getting over a little bit of bronchitis. Um, so we are here to talk about uh, Domestic Violence Awareness Month. It is here in the, the whole month of October. So um, domestic violence is an epidemic that is affecting every single community, including ours. Um, Domestic violence is based in power and control, and it affects all people of all ages, all genders, all races, all socioeconomic classes. In the past year, the Willow has taken 3,700 3, hotline calls, and we've provided 16,826 safe nights of rest between our emergency shelter and our transitional housing program. We also provided 17,095 services between our advocates at our shelter and our community-based advocates. We are honored to, honored to serve our clients, and we are lucky to work along so many um, great community partners that are really fighting for stable housing, for food security, for equality, because we know all of these things, um, a lack of resources can be a contributing factor to domestic violence. Um, we will continue to break cycles of violence through our prevention work with our community members, especially our youth that we get to meet with and we get to teach them about healthy relationships. Um, and we will have several events throughout the month of October for Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Um, there will be a candlelight vigil that Be More Like Claire is putting on tomorrow at 6 p.m. at South Park. Um, and next Thursday, along with Be More Like Claire in the Lawrence Public Library, we'll have In Their Shoes, which is a simulation where you can experience um, a, a story that somebody has gone through where they've uh, experienced domestic violence into personal violence and kind of see why it can be tough to leave one of those relationships. Um, on October 13th, we're partnering with uh, the Lawrence Art Center and Free State Festival to put on Nostalgia Nightmare, where we will ruin a John Hughes movie for you. Um, we're going to break down weird science and why it did not age well. We will have problematic bingo, and we will have some special treats. And then October 18th, we're going to be um, with at Lucia. We're going to do We Are Never Getting Back Together, which is a Taylor Swift sing-along, where we're going to break down healthy and unhealthy uh, relationships uh, through the lyrics of Taylor Swift. And then on October 25th, we will be partnering with the Community Children's Center to put on Building Bridges uh, to safety, strengthening families for a brighter future. And that event is going to kind of talk about um, domestic violence and witnessing domestic violence and what that can do to early childhood development. Um, everybody can find out more information on our website, which is willowdvcenter.org slash dvam. If you want more info, if you want to register, get tickets uh, to any of our events that require them, you can do that there. Um, and I just want to say thank you so much to the city of Lawrence for recognizing um, October as Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Thank you, Andre. Thank you. I'll read the proclamation now. Whereas in the United States, more than 10 million adults, 10 million adults experience domestic violence annually, with an average of 19,000 calls per day received by domestic violence hotlines nationwide. And whereas in the state of Kansas, one domestic violence incident occurs every 23 minutes and one domestic violence murder occurs every 11 days, with one domestic violence arrest by law enforcement being made every 47 minutes. 
and whereas the impact of domestic violence is not felt only by the individuals and families, but also by communities in a nation as a, as a whole. And whereas Lawrence joins with others across the state of Kansas and nationwide in supporting domestic violence victims and survivors, the advocates and organizations who serve them in holding offenders accountable in our community. Now therefore, I, Lisa Larson, the mayor of the city of Lawrence, do hereby designate October 23rd as Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And in recognition of the critical work being done by domestic violence advocates and allies in service of the survivors and the victims that they serve, I do encourage all citizens to actively engage in the scheduled activities and events sponsored by Willow Domestic Center and other organizations working toward eradication of domestic violence. Thank you. All right, we'll let folks get out of the room. Okay, we'll go on to item C, which is general public comment. The public is allowed to speak on issues or items that are not scheduled for discussion on the agenda. Comments should be limited to issues and items germane to the business of the governing body. The commission will not discuss or debate these items, nor will the commission make decisions on items presented during this time. Each person will be limited to three minutes. Is there any general public comment? on items that are not on the agenda. Hi. Hi. Uh, I'm John. Um, well, I want to address an issue that's deeply affected our community. Uh, we've been facing challenges related to public safety, drugs, and the well-being of our fellow citizens. Uh, our community members are, have tirelessly worked to improve the situation, advocating for a safer environment for all. Long-lasting businesses who have been getting slaughtered by these problems daily, and that should never even have to be said about small-town businesses. They have defined this town, and there are people who rely on places such as the library, downtown stores, restaurants, and people have admitted that they prefer not to bring their kids down there anymore. We've witnessed an increase in drug-related issues, overdoses, problems in our town, and even worse, in our university. These problems have taken a toll on our city, affecting our residents' lives in various ways. Our collective efforts to address these concerns have been tireless, yet we've encountered difficulties in getting the attention we support and need. Thanks for your time and consideration. Thank you, John. <clears throat> Other public comment? Come on up. Hello, uh, my name's Rich Yakel. Um, I'm one of the owners of Mark's downtown has been there since 1880. Um, we've owned it since uh, 1982. Um, sent a couple emails to this group. Uh, two in the last three years. Brad's answered one, both. Bart answers one. That's it. <clears throat> the reason I'm here is because of the transient situation of both downtown and throughout Lawrence. I feel there's a big difference between homeless and transients. I'm all in favor of helping our homeless, not the ones that show up for free support. <clears throat> One of our local police officers told me he met a guy the other day that he said just got here from South Dakota. When the officer asked him why he came here, his reply was, 
because everything's free. Free living, free sex, free drugs. He added that the word is out and there will be a lot more coming. About a month ago, I was told at a meeting by a lady that works for a charitable organization here in town that she had a girl in the other day and said, you must be new in town. Her reply was yes. I got out of jail in Junction City yesterday and they gave me a bus ticket to Lawrence, Kansas. In the last couple weeks, I've cleaned something that looked like fried chicken off the front door handle to my store, as well as all over the windows. It was disgusting. Uh, about two weeks ago, my business partner had someone, when we got off work, or somebody in his car ransacking it. Guy runs off, they eventually catch him down by Taco John's on six. First, my business partner saw him at the library, alerts police, police see him, they go running, catch him at Taco John's. Two police officers have him on the ground, he's resisting arrest, yelling at my business partner that if he sees him or his car, look out. They take him to jail. Oh, the officer told my business partner this gentleman already had two warrants out for his arrest. He was out of jail the next day. Speaking of the public library, my daughter used to go down there once a week, check out as many as 50 books. She won't take her kids there anymore. Kids are 11 and 6. I mean, what's that telling your kids? You know, we can't go to the library anymore. Um, last week, I'm cleaning up debris off the sidewalk. Every day we go out and blow it. These days there's trash, there's stuff that didn't used to be there. Guy's walking by, dirty white t-shirt, walks at me like he's gonna attack me and I just kind of like back off. He keeps walking, there's a family getting out of a car. He does the same thing at them and then takes a couple more steps. Time. Thank you, thank you, Rich. Thank you. Do, do something to solve the problem. Thank you. Same issue. My experiences have been because I'm very uh, attuned to the parks and the trails. I'm on them every day, miles and miles. And lately, in the last couple of years, we've had, as this gentleman said, transients a lot, and just the volume has increased so much. So I've had a couple of scary incidents where people came after me, where um, came after me and my dog at a at a homeless encampment right off the trail behind the boathouse, and. I couldn't get away from the dog. There was nobody in the camp, garbage everywhere. It took me about 15 minutes, super scary. And just the other day, it was down uh, right here on the railroad tracks at Bircham Park, or at Constant Park. And three guys came after me. They thought I was taking a picture of their bike. And they started cussing at me and ran at me. I'll F you up, et cetera. Super scary. There are so many places I don't go anymore. They've become fewer and fewer and fewer because they're not safe. Um, I'm going to run out of my time. Uh, there was a fight on, in Watson Park one night where uh, people were sleep in the park and they hide in the bushes and you know police don't see them often. A fight where a naked person's going to the bathroom in the in Watson Park and somebody else starts beating them and they're screaming obscenities at each other. It, it's a scary situation that feels like um, there's, there's 
a mental issue. It's either drug or it's mental instability. I'm sympathetic, but the volume is crazy. Please, a census, there, there's got to be a limit to how many people this community can support. Thanks. Thank you. Any other general public comment on items that are not already on the agenda? If not, we will go to Zoom. Michael Allman. Good evening, uh, Michael Allman here. And uh, this is sort of a proclamation, I guess, that I'd like to bring you to your attention. Uh, this week from October 2nd to October 9th is um, um, uh, the National Week Without Driving. People without a car or unable to drive should be able to get where they need to go safely and effectively. But every day, Americans who can't drive, approximately between 25 and 33%, depending on where you are, face significant barriers to mobility, such as inadequate sidewalks, poor transit, lack of bikeway connectivity, and dangerous roads. There needs to be, the needs of non-drivers are too often disregarded in transportation infrastructure and policies. Our goal should be a transportation system designed to support all individuals, regardless of ability, age, or income, that will strengthen our communities and enhance our quality of life. Non-drivers are not just children below driving age either. It encompasses a growing share of young adults, older people beyond their driving years, and people with disabilities, uh, as well as uh, black, Latino, and Native American people um, who can't afford a car. So Lawrence has been making slow progress over the years. Our transit system is definitely being improved and we just introduced Transit On Demand, and I thank you so much for that. Um, the sidewalk issue, as you know, still needs a lot of attention and a lot of money uh, for all the gaps and the poor condition. Similarly, our bikeway system is fragmented, um, and many of the bikeways are of a certain design that most people won't even use them. So I would encourage the next budget cycle for 2025 that you consider uh, expanding the funding for bicycle and pedestrian projects um, and change the ratio so that there's more funding for bicycle, pedestrian, uh, and less for motor vehicles. Right now it's about 99% to one. So that's all I need to say, and I thank you for the time. Any other public comment on Zoom? Chris Flowers. Hi, this is Chris Flowers, and um, recently a problem um, a coworker of mine has been having is um, the apartment complex he's living in. They've they're they've gated off some of their their um, parking, and they're charging a hundred dollars a month to park, and it. It, what makes me think about it is that the city, like where he lives, I think the city allowed the apartment complex to build um, less 
parking spaces than what the code was. And I was just thinking if, if we're going to be looking at parking, maybe we should be looking at um, apartment complexes if they should be allowed to charge for parking. Because if we're saying you need th this many this number of parking spaces to not create a problem in the neighborhood with you know parking running off onto the streets because that's what's happening is that some not everyone's paying the hundred dollars and so they're parking in other places so i i think that's an issue that might be looked at because it's kind of like the apartment complex um, putting their own um set of rules on a city code you know that a, a code that's there for to for all the citizens citizens of lawrence and also something that i just kind of has been also thinking about is when it comes to the undocumented immigrants and how we were going to stand against ice you know and and welcome them and not call ice on them are, are we that welcoming when it comes to the unhoused? Like, do we, like the, there were towns in America that had more problems with undocumented immigrants than we do. But when we made that statement, we were kind of telling them, well, you need to be welcoming to them. So it, it just seems kind of interesting. I just wonder if some of you who, supported the the um, undocumented immigrants if you have that much support for homeless that move here just throwing that out there thank you any other comments on zoom uh, that's all the comments mayor all right bring it back to the commission and we're going to move on to um, consent agenda item d Items on the consent agenda are considered under one motion and approved by one motion. Members of the gov governing body may remove items for separate discussion if desired. Members of the public may remove items as uh, items identified as quasi-judicial for separate discussion if desired. Members of the public will be limited to three minutes for comments. So is there any commissioner that would like to remove an item from the consent agenda? Mayor, I don't want to remove anything, but I do want to ask, since uh, Derek's here and Brandon, to remind you uh, for D7 A and B, the road closures, please include the maps so that we can figure out what is and isn't going to be closed, sidewalks, et cetera. Thank you. I'm pulling that deep. Any, any other commissioner online? I'm not seeing Commissioner Sellers online, Kurt. Kids. Mayor, I have nothing to prove. I, mean, I have nothing to pull, <laughs> but I did want clarification to uh, if you were wanting to pull something, because it sounded like in your the end of your statement that you were wanting to pull something, but I wasn't sure. Yeah, I was going to sit after I asked everybody else. Um, I do want to put pull item D9B, and then I also will move on to the quasi-judicial items. Is there any commissioner that would like to pull that? not then I'll ask for a motion yeah. we'll just yeah. make sure that if there's anyone on the in the public oh, um, wants to pull. oh the quasi I'm sorry I forgot about that thank you very much Sherry mm -hmm. is there anybody in the general public that would like to pull the quasi judicial item which is um, trying to find it D 8 a and B anybody online uh, no Okay, bring it back. Move for approval of the consent agenda with the exception of D9B. 
Second. I have a first and a second. All in favor? Aye. 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 It passes five to zero. We'll open it up with D9B. I pulled this for a couple of reasons. Um, there was an item on there that some of the neighborhoods, um, or at least neighborhood wanted to talk about in the 13th Street um, bike project. And then also I had a question um, to staff about whether or not there are written policies on when we, um, when we decide to have protected bike lanes versus just striped bike lanes versus just sharrows, do we actually have a written policy in that regard? Uh, good evening, Jake Baldwin, Engineering Program Manager. Um, we do have uh, the Lawrence Bikes Plan has a, a matrix that determines the level of comfort for a facility, and that really helps determine um, what facility we're going to put on there, whether it's a striped bike lane or a protected facility like a cycle track, um, and that's dependent on road volume and speed. Okay, thank you. I want one more on that. Do we have uh, the policy? Is there a policy that when we have these bike projects come up and we've got them funded, do we wait till the road is redone, or is it just if the money's there, we're going to go ahead and do the work? Are you? I'm sorry if I don't understand your question. Are you talking like a capital project versus a maintenance project? Yeah, either, you know, sure. just how is so, that handled? Right, with a capital project, we're going to assess the corridor at the beginning of the project and work with the Multimodal Transportation Commission and those tools I just discussed to figure out what options are available for that road in the given conditions. Um, with maintenance projects, we do a little bit different where, um, you know, we're not going to do geometric improvements with a street maintenance project, so that really limits the type of facilities that might be available for that project. And again, those are brought before the Multimodal Transportation Commission. Okay. All right. Thank you. Any other questions? I, Jake, while you're there, can you talk a little bit about the 13th um, corridor plan? And a little, I know there's some discussion at the, the Multimodal about that. Right. Yep. So um, the 13th Street. I'm going to refer to it for, as a bike boulevard for one moment because that's what we've all known it as for a really long time. Um, but through our discussion of the Multimodal Transportation Commission and the neighborhood's concerns, and granted it's been a long time since we were talking about doing that project and we've changed guidelines and policies, that really calling it that is inappropriate at this point. We don't know what facility that would be. It is an, it is an incomplete project on the priority um, bike network, so it's, and it scores highly. So it's kind of worthy of inclusion on the plan as a bike project from A to B. Now, what that project would end up being is yet to be determined. And naturally, where the Multimodal Transportation Commission ended with their recommendation of the five-year plan. And that project's not in, even in design until, what, 27? I believe that's correct, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Jake. Thank you. Any other questions? If not, we'll open it up for public comment on this specific item. Good evening. Uh, my name is Barry Shalinsky. I'm president of the East Lawrence Neighborhood Association. Uh, thanks to the mayor for uh, pulling this from the consent agenda. I, uh, consent agenda, and to uh, all commissioners who do their homework to make sure that our city dollars are spent wisely. Uh, there's a letter from the ELNA board to the Multimodal Transportation Committee in your packet. 
Um, I've been president of ELNA for the last three years, and there have been no discussions with us regarding this matter. Our traffic safety committee uh, has been active throughout this time. Uh, we've discussed several priorities for improving safety with city staff, uh, but this project was never on our radar screen uh, as a neighborhood priority, and I don't know of anyone in the neighborhood who wants another West 21st Street along East 13th Street. Uh, this is a great opportunity, however. Uh, Elna is currently working with the city planning staff to update the East Lawrence neighborhood plan. That would be the most appropriate venue for addressing bicycle and pedestrian safety, uh, access and safety in the neighborhood uh, in collaboration with MMTC and other appropriate partners. A major transportation initiative should be part of that planning process and neighbors should be actively engaged. That has not been happening. When the city wanted to create a so-called pedestrian arts corridor on 9th Street without adequately involving neighbors in the process, things did not go well. A quick Google search regarding that project will show several references to lessons learned from the experience about the importance of community engagement in conceiving and designing projects that impact on a neighborhood. I would note that years later, we are still waiting for marked pedestrian crosswalks along the so-called pedestrian corridor. Thank you. Thank you. Any other public comment from the audience? If not, we'll go to Zoom. Michael Allman. Hi, good evening again. Michael Allman here. Um, as far as 13th Street goes, I totally defer to the neighborhood or their um, having, having their interests uh, be foremost. I'm a bicycle advocate, but I'm also a neighborhood advocate. Um, on this issue, however, I think my focus is more on the policy for what constitutes the default bikeway on any projects that Lawrence undertakes. When it's a capital project, as Mr. Baldwin pointed out, there's a matrix in this bicycle uh, plan that they go by for a level of comfort. However, that's not the only way that bikeways are funded and built in this town. Um, there are also major changes that take place every year within the street maintenance program. The street maintenance program is a legacy bikeway program back in the early 2000s when Lawrence was doing nothing for bikeways and Public Works at that time grudgingly agreed, okay, okay, we will do some bikeways, but we'll only do them when we're doing street maintenance. We're not gonna invest in anything beyond stripes. So 
That's what the, what the citizens had to accept at that time. However, now, as other communities have, Lawrence has evolved much beyond the white stripe bike lane, a, a facility that very few people, um, particularly family bicyclists, children bicyclists, people that have all ages and abilities that need a bikeway do not want to take because it's not safe for them. Um, yet in the street maintenance program, the current policy that um, the city engineer has developed with the funds that he took from the green pavement project, that new policy defines a bikeway only as a white stripe bikeway. That is the only bikeway listed in that entire document. Nothing about buffered bike lanes, about protected bike lanes, about separated bike lanes, about bicycle tracks. The only official bikeway is a white stripe. We need a policy that when they're doing street maintenance or any project the, that defines what the preferred and default bikeway is, which a number of commissioners and mayors, including Mayor Finkeldy, when he was, and I hope I'm quoting you right, Brad, um, said that we need to uh, be looking at separated facilities in some of these projects. Not everywhere, but some of them. Mayor Boley said the same thing, and I believe Time. you did also, Mayor. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Other public comment on this item? Chris Flowers. Yeah, this is Chris Flowers. I'm not that knowledgeable on this issue, but I remember when that 21st Bike Boulevard was built, and I was not a fan of it then, and I'm not now. I'm not against uh, the Bike Boulevard. It's just the way it was done about. Um, I believe the city did too much that they didn't need to, and if you guys do up on the 13th. I hope that um, you do as little as possible and see if that works instead of doing as much as possible. Like the, the less you do, the less it'll cost. So I, I just hope if you do something, you start small and see if that works instead of just spending money. Um, and also, I, I'm... I, I, I think you all, if, if this is about bicycles, I think the ability for the, the community to bike as a whole outweighs um, the neighborhood's wants a little bit. But I do think the neighborhood should definitely be involved in this and they should have some say in it. So I, I'm just throwing that out there. Thank you. Thank you. Any other public comment online? Uh, no, that's all the comments. Bring it back to the commission for discussion or any other questions? Anybody? Nope. Um, go ahead. I just wanted to uh, ask, uh, follow up on some of the items that Michael has spoke about regarding the policies on the, when he brought up the green striping and so forth. I mean, it's, he brought up that, you know, there's only really one um, as far as being protected versus buffer, and there's not a true. It, and I may defer that question to Dave Cronin. I believe he's online. He's kind of been leading that effort. Yeah, so I would um, share that in, in our bikeway plan um, on maintenance projects, we it does specify that we uh, try to retrofit the street with the next best facility, um, even if it doesn't meet the desired level of com comfort. So that's 
that also is in our bikeway plan. <clears throat> when we worked with the consultant to uh, develop the uh, bike head design guidelines, which were primar primarily focused on crossings and the discussion we had with green pavement marking, um, we also discussed uh, uh, striped bike lanes and um, you know their recommendation. <clears throat> their recommendation was still to um, uh, apply uh, bikeway facilities based off context sensitivity with the street width, the design speed, whether or not there's parking or not on the street. Um, but as a general conceptual uh, recommendation, they recommended that on principal arterials that we would install protected bike lanes, on minor arterials we'd install buffer bike lanes, and on collector streets we would install standard bike lanes. So that was uh, discussed and included in the, the bike head design guidelines that we um, incorporated into our city design standards. Okay, thank you, thank you. Any other comments on this? Uh, I think maybe, maybe I, I would say, I, I do get a little concerned to see things uh, remaining on lists um, that some people, seems like particularly in this neighborhood, uh, thought were um, agreed uh, not to do. And however, the iteration of it is, um, Mayor, even I saw something on a, someone's CIP list from 1998 that somehow magically got funded years and years later when really no one was paying very close attention. So it does worry me to see things like that remain on a list, even though it's not designed, even though it's not clear, and, and obviously even though we, we would expect a very high level of public engagement. So just a little, little concern there. Any thoughts? Thank you. I think one thing I would ask um, staff is as far as what the level of community engagement, especially with the neighborhood that's impacted by this particular project or could be impacted um, in 2027, I think it's slated for as to what sort of engagement is going to be with the neighborhood and what sort of input are they going to be given? Well, I think that's something we'd still have to identify. Again, being in 2027, it's really not on our work plan radar yet being that far out. So I think that, again, that's something we'd have to talk to our community engagement experts here at the city and, and kind of sort out what level of engage, engagement we need. But it would definitely be something very collaborative. Okay. Thank you. Jessica, Jessica. I'll just add, so the, Jessica, yeah, Jessica Mortinger, Transportation Planning Manager for the Lawrence Douglas County Metropolitan Planning Organization. Um, we're responsible for transportation planning in Lawrence and Douglas County, and one of the roles we have is implementing the bikeway planning process. And towards the end of 2024, we will begin an update to the Lawrence Bikes Plan, and that's the plan that really identifies the entire network of bikeways across our community and prioritizes based on community feedback and public values, um, the priorities that get laid out for the primary and secondary network that then get funded through the five-year bike ped CIP. And those system-wide plans are where we look at connections all throughout the community to make sure that people can get from destinations from point A to point B that are beyond neighborhoods, not just within neighborhoods. And so that network plan will also, in the meantime, before this project even gets funded for design, be in a process of public engagement and revitalization to go back and reconfirm some of the values and uh, concerns that we heard from the community and when all of those alignments were identified um, about five years ago. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you. Yeah, that's actually what I was going to say, which was, you know, I, you know, 13th Street is designated as a 
as a primary, a priority funding network is it's in the plan. And so I guess I would say, to, you know, to the neighborhood, you know, as part of this planning process, if you don't think 13th Street should be on the bikeway plan, it would be the time to get it out of the bikeway plan and, and say we should have another connection. I mean, I think that's why it's funded, because it's in the plan. Um, you know, I'm not a big fan of the uh, boulevard. Um, and so, I mean, if that was the request, I wouldn't necessarily support that. You know, I'd be okay changing this to 2027, $350,000 for a priority funding network project and take 13th Street off of it. Um, because we have some other projects, but I think that's why it's there. And if, if that changes, I mean, I think it's important to designate a, a, a project to help move our bike plan forward. And uh, I will say to Michael, and he made his point, I do look forward to the day we have a really good separated bike lane somewhere. I've seen them work in other cities. Mm -hmm. I don't know where the first one will be here, but I do think they can work and make a difference. Yep. Any other thoughts? In the I'm sorry, I might have missed it. Jessica, when was that uh, review process going to begin? You said 2024. Is there a specific? Yeah, so the MPO has a work, an annual work program that we set where we look at all the planning projects that we plan to en encompass and embark on in a year. And we just have that document out for public comment right now. It's called the Unified Planning Work Program um, for 2024. And we are planning probably like, I would assume, because we have some other priorities that come before that that have to get finished at earliest, maybe fourth quarter is when we would start that in 2024. It's generally about a year-long process when we go and table and engage a steering committee around of bicycling, um, bicyclists of all ages and abilities, um, you know, as we recruit that and identify those people um, to help us guide that plan development. So there will be a steering committee, excuse me, there will be a steering committee, is that what you said? Yes, the MPO has a history of establishing steering committees to guide plans like this in work. We want to make sure that we have an appropriate balance of staff advisors to help guide um, our work through best practices and research and also citizens. So we are not only reaching out to the general public at large and the tabling and open house opportunities that we do, but that we're also hearing directly from citizens who can help guide our work in the drafting of the document. Those are the people who are along the journey, the whole planning journey with us um, and are more intimately familiar with reviewing different drafts and revising concepts as we go through the process. And we have a history of doing that for bike planning, pedestrian planning, all of the mode-specific planning work that we do. Okay. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you. There'll be a public announcement, I'm assuming, as to when that steering committee. Yeah. Thank you. Anything else? If not, um, Commissioner Sellers, anything? No, ma'am. Okay. I'll take a motion. Are we okay approving it as it is? Or would I you am, yeah. I, th I think, you know, since it's 2027. Okay. But I do think that's food for thought for sure. Okay. I move to approve the 2024 to 2028 five year plan for non motorized projects. Second. I have a first and a second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? Aye. Aye. Five to zero. Okay, we're moving on, moving on to item F, which is our work session. We've got a couple items. The work session provides an opportunity for the city commission to discuss items in greater detail. The commission will take no binding action on items presented during this time. Work session topics are eligible for public comment. Members of the public will be limited to three minutes for comments. 
Good evening, Mayor, Commissioners. My name is Jennifer Worth. I'm the Interim Assistant Finance Director, and we will be receiving the 2022 Annual Financial Comprehensive Report. So we have Kristen Hughes, who is our Lead Auditor for RSM on Zoom. She will be giving us the results of the audit. But before I pass it on to her, I do want to recognize our entire finance team as a whole. We worked extremely hard. We had a lot of obstacles this year, and we pulled through. We did fairly well with everything going on. So with that, I will pass it on to Kristen. Um, I will be around if there's any questions afterwards. Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer, and, and welcome to, to leading our finance team. I know this is your first time up here, I believe, since Jeremy left. Yep, so, thank you. Welcome. Good evening. Can you all hear me okay? Yes. Yes. Okay, great. I'm going to share my screen if I have, um, I might not have the ability, actually. Uh, let's see. That's okay. I, I, it was just going to be a couple slides that would recap the materials you have. Um, you, so just as, as as Jennifer said, oh, excuse me. You kind of able to share. Um, is it saying no? It just says the host has disabled participant screen sharing. But it, it's really not a big deal. I just had a couple slides that were going to recap a couple items. So I'm happy to move on. Thank you. Yeah, I have it set. I mean, I'm looking at it on here too, but we'll give it a- Oh, okay, I, it's working now. Let's see. Okay. Okay, are you just seeing this PowerPoint? Yes. Great. Okay, uh, just to piggyback off uh, what Jennifer said, thank you for letting us go through the audit. I also have um, Aaron called Aaron on with me this evening. He served in the engagement manager role with us this year on the audit. Um, I believe you've been provided uh, with, with copies of the what we call the audit deliverables, which is the going to be the city's annual comprehensive financial report or the audited financial statements. Um, that is a large document. Obviously, it covers the um, city's financial results for the entire calendar year. Um, you know, as, as a recap for the information in there, part of what make this makes that so large for a city, um, you will find included in there, for example, the individual fund financial statements for all of the funds uh, reported on by the city. So all of the governmental funds, both those budgeted for and not budgeted for, enterprise funds, internal service funds. Um, just to let you know, there, I mean, there is an individual balance sheet and income statement for each of those funds. Uh, at the front of that, in the front of those, there's also the um, consolidated or combined impact. So you will see a combined statement of net position or balance sheet for the city of Lawrence as a whole. There is also um, a lengthy footnotes that go through several required disclosures, topics that you do have to present on or disclose on in your footnotes, which is gonna include examples such as information about the types of investments you're in, uh, information about the the pension plan you participate in, CAPERS, um, OPEB, which is post-employment retirement benefits, uh, debt the city has outstanding, capital assets, and what that activity looked like for the year. So there's an extensive amount of note disclosures as part of the audit, both the finance department and us go through and verify that all the disclosures are being met in those areas that are required. 
You'll also find at the front of the document what's called management's discussion and analysis. I like to point that out if you don't have the time um, to read the entire document. That is usually a nicer, I'll just say condensed um, narrative that the finance department prepares that goes through and summarizes the results of the current year under audit compared to the prior year and provides explanations um, on any areas that may have seen increases or decreases and why that occurred. In the back of the document, you'll also see the statistical section. So while this area is um, unaudited, it is beneficial and most of the schedules require or show a 10-year history of things such as what the primary revenue collection sources are for the city, um, a 10-year summary of um, debt outstanding. It includes things such as demographic, uh, statistics about the city, operating information about the city. Um, so again, that can be just meaningful um, from a different lens as far as the content in there. Um, the next item I'm going to go through, you also received a, um, I'll just say a, a smaller staple packet that includes the required auditor communications. So auditing standards do require at the conclusion of the audit um, that certain uh, communications are um, covered at the end of the audit. And so here on the slide here, uh, this is a summary of what you'll see in that packet. So first of all, um, in the ACAFER that I mentioned, we did issue an unmodified opinion, which is the AICPA's formal term for what's also known as a clean opinion. So the financials were presented in accordance with GAAP with no material um, uh, misstatements noted. Also, you'll see in the second bullet point, we like to just highlight if there was any new accounting standards that the city was required to um, implement. So the city did implement a standard for lease accounting. Um, overall, the the impact was not was not um, hugely material to the financials. It, it just enhances disclosures about the types of lease arrangements that um, entities are in. And this was um, a blanket kind of adoption for both GASB and FASB entities, but just provides in, enhanced information about the types of leases, um, what those assets relate to, et cetera. The third bullet point is, um, as a part of the audit, we are required to take a look at what's identified as significant accounting estimates. So examples, common examples would be fair value of investments, um, the depreciable lives of capital assets that management elects to use, um, the valuation around uh, the pension estimates. So as a part of the audit, we do take a look at those. We're, we're really looking for kind of two primary things that one, if if these are areas, which most of them are, that you have policies adopted around that you're following your policy uh, when, when management is preparing that estimate, and then also that uh, the estimates just seem consistent with, with the industry as a whole. Audit adjustments, though, this is going to represent an item um, identified during testing that uh, was re recorded into the financial statements. So there was one audit adjustment identified. Um, so, I mean, I'll just, for perspective, when you think about the number of transactions that the finance department, the city collectively is recording throughout the year, um, that speaks a lot for us to have one audit adjustment that came up during the year. That, that's a positive result as far as um, the original, we'll say, trial balance we were provided with to start our audit, um, with the exception of this one item. And again, I think it was just a gross up on a payable for a capital asset piece at the end of the year. That, that speaks to the hard work that Jennifer mentioned as far as getting ready for the audit, that we did not come in and find a lot of errors or adjustments that needed to be recorded in the, in the audit product. The next bullet point, so similar in that um, maybe in our testing we identified 
again, um, immaterial, I'll say misstatements. So items that rose to the level of communicating it to you all, but were deemed to be immaterial by both management as well as us. So these items are not recorded in the financial statements and they are summarized in the packet. You'll see those in there, um, just a handful, and most of them uh, relate to what we call timing or cutoff issues. So. Most common example is maybe a payable at year end. Um, the expense should have been accrued for in the current year, instead was booked in the next year. So most of these are just simply timing issues on when an expense was recognized um, in accordance with GAAP. The next couple bullet points, I mean, this is just to emphasize that if disagreements with management arose during the audit, if we had difficulties that we encountered during the audit, those would be communicated to you throughout the audit process, and there were none. Future accounting pronouncements, this is just to highlight that um, there is a footnote in the financials that identifies any upcoming accounting pronouncements that will be required to be adopted. Um, so users just have a, have a way to see any upcoming standards that might impact the city's financial statements. Uh, the last item to note here, um, as a reminder, the city has historically uh, submitted the aquifer for the GFOA Certificate of Achievement, and that's for excellence in financial reporting. Um, so you'll see in the current year financials, uh, the this was awarded to the 2021 financials, so the certificate was issued, and you'll see it included in the current year, and the city has already submitted the 2022 report for review as well. Um, you know, this emphasize this because this is not a required step. Um, you know, this is your team going above and beyond as far as it does require additional disclosures and information in the financial statements to be able to qualify um, for that thorough review program that the GFOA does do. On the next slide, um, the last, the third and last deliverable is the compliance report. So a couple of items here. First of all, we issue a compliance report because the city expends more than $750,000 a year, or did at least in 2022, in federal grant expenditures. So the city is then required to have what's called a single audit performed. That means the auditor is taking a look at compliance areas as well um, around grant spending. In that document, there are a couple of uh, letters in there. The first one is, with an audit performed in accordance with government auditing standards, we are going to issue a letter to the effect that the auditor, if we identify material weaknesses or significant deficiencies in the course of our testing, those are required to be communicated in writing to those charged with governance. Um, so you'll see there were none that were identified. So as a reminder, the purpose of a financial statement audit is not to give an opinion on internal controls, so we do not. However, again, to emphasize, if we become aware of anything that rises to the level of that material weakness or significant deficiency that is required to be reported. So I would just like to note, um, you know, We've, we've been doing, I, I think this is my fourth year doing the presentation with you all. There have previously been material weaknesses for audit adjustments that came up during testing, et cetera. So, um, you know, just to highlight, again, that's a reflection of the one audit adjustment I mentioned earlier that um, that is an area that the finance department collectively has continued to improve upon. Um, so again, no, no material adjustments were needed through the course of our audit work. For the single audit specifically, um, so the, the guidance we're following, we perform that testing is under what's called the Uniform Grant Guidance. Um, for perspective, the city had about 21.9 million that was reported this year under federal grant expenditures. So in that document, you detail out what were all the grants and how much was expended on each. Um, we 
we are provided guidance on how we select what's called the major programs or basically which grant did we audit. So you'll see there were three um, grants that we were required to audit this year. It was the ARPA funds, Highway Planning and Construction Cluster, and the Federal Transit Cluster. Um, so just for perspective, and now again, our testing, similar to the financial statement audit, is performed on a sample basis. However, those three programs did provide represent about 80% of those total federal grant expenditures that were subject to testing this year. So similar to the financial statements, um, an unmodified or clean opinion was issued for the major programs. Um, no instances of unallowable costs were identified. Um, and then similar for deficiencies, if we had identified a material weakness or significant deficiency specific to um, the controls around spending grant funding, again, that would be required to be communicated to you and there were none identified. So you will see that summarized in the compliance report. Um, oops, sorry. I'm gonna go ahead and stop sharing. Um, I know I, we're happy to go through any questions. Um, you know, just for perspective, the audit process is a, is a long process, right? And it takes, we usually perform what's called interim or planning testing around the year in phase. Um, the finance department, it takes a few months to get the financials prepared and ready for us to start auditing. And then we, we are doing our testing for um, a few additional months and then move into the reporting phase. So again, just to echo what Jennifer said, there is there is a lot of hard work um, that goes into prep preparing and working through the audit with us. Um, so I'll go ahead and pause again. Happy to go through any questions on the audit um, or the information I went through. Thank you, Kristen. Thank you. We'll put it up to questions from the commissioners. Any questions? It's a, it's a good day when you don't have questions for your auditors, <laughs> which has not always been the case, but it's a good day. I guess one thing I know uh, as far as how does this compare to last year, I know for several previous years we did struggle with our audits, but we've been constantly working to um, and, and be better with them. I don't know if Jennifer, you got anything to say about how clean this audit was. And Considering the implementation that we went with, that we were going through right. and all of that, it was very, I mean, very clean. We had that one audit adjustment, and that was, it was because of the implementation. We were working kind of out of two systems because um, we stopped with the old system, started with the new system, and that one just did not get caught. But um, I don't see that being an issue in the future. It was, you know, we, we do realize there's a lot of stuff to learn with the new system, so we're still going to be learning, but, you know, we will always be learning. That's... Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. Anybody else with questions? If not, we'll open it up to public comment. Any public comment from the room? If not, to Zoom? Any public comment on Zoom? No, Mayor. Bring it back up for discussion. Anything else? Uh, would I echo Commissioner Finkeldine that uh, <laughs> considering what uh, it was like a couple of years ago and was mentioned during the uh, presentation, I think we've come a long way. Yep. Channeling my best commissioner bully here, <laughs> you know, unmod unmodified clean opinion, no issues on accounting estimates, only one audit adjustment, no internal control deficiencies, and his favorite, no out-of-scope fees. We had none of those. And so, um, thank you. 
GFO. <laughs> thank you to the team. It, it, we have come away. Thank you to our auditors for doing that. As I said, we've um, had some times where we spent a lot more time on the audit and talked a lot more about our accounting. And um, this is just what you want to see, a, a clean audit that you don't have to talk about. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I believe this is our last year for this auditor. Is that correct? We'll be up for... Yes. <clears throat> We are going out for the uh, new auditing services or auditing services. The RFP is out right now, and I believe it closes in a few weeks. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, the idea is to change out audit auditors periodically so that way we can get a fresh look at it, which is really important. So, again, thank you thanks. To OSM, and yeah. thank you for your guys' team over the last several years. You've thank you. helped us come a long way. There's no other comments on this from, from commissioners and we'll, we'll move on to the next item. Thank you. Next item is um, the res to receive the strategic plan update from the Connected City Outcome Team. Kurt, where am I going to share this at? I'm definitely not seeing that. Maybe, uh, oh, there we go. It was just hidden. I was saved. This one? Is that what you wanted or the yeah. PowerPoint? No, that's it. Okay. That'll work. Join me. <laughs> uh, good evening, Mayor and Commissioners. Um, I'm Jake Baldwin, Engineering Program Manager with Municipal Services and Operations, and I'm joined this evening uh, with Jessica Mortinger, uh, Transportation Planning Manager for the Lawrence Douglas County Metropolitan Planning Organization, and together we're going to provide an update on the connected city outcome of the city strategic plan, and we're going to specifically focus on non-motorized projects, which is really convenient considering the discussion we've had a little bit earlier. Um, so with that, I'll provide a brief overview and that we're going to discuss the applicable progress indicators. We're going to discuss project planning and project implementation. As a refresher, the Connected City Outcome is focused on providing well-maintained, functional, and efficient infrastructure that supports accessible, sustainable methods for safely moving people throughout the community and region and reflects the city's commitment to the well-being of all people. There are 14 progress indicators in the Connected City Outcome. Um, three of those are going to be impacted by non-motorized projects, so we'll dive into those with the next slide. The first of those being CC2, the percent of residents satisfied or very satisfied with their transportation experiences. CC5, percent of sidewalks and shared use paths in compliance with the Americans with Disabilities Act and deflection minimum standards and CC11, percent of residents using non-automobile means of transportation to work. We begin this journey with our system plans. And so we're going to talk about the bike one and then the ped one. Um, we conduct a public process to engage in conversation with citizens who will talk to us at tables and at open houses and at stakeholder events to solicit their input and opinion of, and values about bicycling. And we're going to show you how that input that we collect in those processes reflects the tools and strategies, strategies we've identified and 
we're moving forward to implement. Um, we, you can see a majority of respondents strongly or somewhat st strong, some, somewhat or strongly agree that they would ride their bicycle more often if they felt they could do so more safely. They also felt like that transportation networks uh, should equally prioritize the needs of people who tra bicycle with the people who, who travel with other modes. When we dove a little more deeply into understanding what that safely meant, we assessed and questioned our respondents about uh, street uh, bicycling on commercial streets. On the left side of this chart, you see no designated bicycle facility, all the way to the most protected bicycle facility, protected bike lanes or cycle tracks. You'll see the level of green, which is somewhat comfortable or very comfortable, grow as the as the protection on that bikeway facility grows. This is exactly what you're hearing from citizens when they come to talk about they want comfortable facilities and they want increased protection. And if you think about commercial streets, those are going to be probably higher volume and higher speed streets. You can also see here a profiling of some of the pictures of different members of the community we talk to, um, telling us what they love about the freedom that bicycling brings um, to them in their journey in their community, whether that's for recreation or transportation. This feedback directly inputs the tools that we built. So we recognize across our entire street network a network of future planned bikeways, um, some existing, some planned. Um, we recognize in the blue lines our priority bikeway network looking at we have more need than available funding. And so if we're going to prioritize investment, we should do that to create a primary connected network that's represented by the priority network in blue and in yellow, a secondary supportive network in yellow. And this is really what the feeds in these projects on these two networks feed into that five-year bike ped CIP you looked at earlier this evening. Um, we then recognized and took and built a model to assess all of the existing and planned bikeways on love, bikeway level of comfort. And we looked at this based on speed and volume of streets. So posted speed and volumes um, from, our, from traffic volume counts and from our model travel demand model to understand what level of comfort with red being least comfortable and blue being green and blue being more comfortable what existing our existing street network looks like in terms of connectivity and so we're going to show you how those tools have carried out um, this is the chart that kind of accompanies these across all of the different bikeway types in a minute Jake's going to show you how that decision has impacted before we had this tool and after we've had this tool in terms of understanding how as we increase speed and volume on streets, we must increase level of separation to increase in comfort um, and safety for all ages and abilities of people who cycle. Great. So as uh, Jessica alluded to, a really good example on how we've improved on our bicycle facilities with this planning work is the Walkers to Drive corridor. So if you're familiar with that corridor, north of Bob Billings Street was reconstructed about 10 years ago, and with that project, uh, we applied on-street conventional bike lanes. You will also may know that not a lot of people use those because of the discomfort they experience being on a roadway of such high speed and high volume. So um, with that um, level of comfort tool that we saw in the previous slide, that we're able to apply that to the project south of Bob Billings, which is currently under construction. We're able to eliminate um, bicycle facilities that don't meet our new standards and um, produce options to the Multimodal Transportation Commission and the City Commission that do meet um, these revised um, standards. 
Uh, generally speaking, we've got a lot more non-motorized projects than we have funding for. Um, so because of this, we've developed a non-motorized projects prioritization policy. Um, this prioritizes that limited funding to that large number of projects. Um, specifically, we use the five-year non-motorized plan that we was just approved here previously this evening. Um, and looking at the, the bike dashboard here in front of us, um, this is the, the bike half of that five-year plan. If I zoom in a little bit, you'll see these are um, kind of the, the missing pieces of the priority and secondary funding network that were identified in the bikes plan. Projects in gray are currently not funded. Projects in yellow, pardon me, projects in orange are um, a project as part of the capital improvement plan. Projects in yellow have been completed. Those in blue are completed through development. And projects in green have been selected for funding in the five-year plan. So we hope that those investments in bicycling and reflective of the community's values, reflecting their desire for safe and comfortable bikeways, will both increase their satisfaction with bicycling as a mode, as we indicate in the, the citizen survey, and also with future results of vehicle miles traveled, of people using bicycling as a mode of transportation for trips to work. Um, we also then go back to our system planning for pedestrian planning. We had the opportunity to embark on a pedestrian planning process through a steering, with a steering committee and doing engagement. Of the responses we got, I'm highlighting the top five uh, difficult or unpleasant walking and wheeling conditions. Two of these of the top five are busy streets with no sidewalks and gaps in sidewalk. Uh, two of, one is about sidewalks or disrepair or tripping hazard, and two are about driver behavior, drivers not watching or yielding and drivers going too fast. And we're gonna talk about the strategies that we've embarked on um, it, through our tools of implementation and our future work to address the concerns that we've heard from the community um, based on this planning work that we've done. We recognize again here the need for the sidewalk network is greater um, than we have the than we then and we're going to have to start tackling this on an incremental basis across the community. We have identified a pedestrian priority network, which is represented in yellow here, and we've identified gaps on this on the network um, in red and in green. Red. Um, lines represent gaps on the arterial collector or shared use path projects. Um, um, gaps in green are representative of connections to safe routes to school, transit, healthy food destinations, and parks, reflective of community values about destinations they desire to walk to at a high level. Um, and so these projects, the ones in red and green, are the ones that feed into the pedestrian side of completing sidewalk gaps on the five-year bike ped CIP. So the pedestrian dashboard here is really the other half of the five-year plan we've been talking about. And this dashboard really visualizes the, the remaining sidewalk gaps as part of the pedestrian plan. Again, projects in gray are unfunded. Projects in orange are being funded through um, other projects in the capital improvement plan. Projects in yellow have been completed. Projects in blue have been completed through development. And projects in green have been selected for funding through the five-year plan. So with the goal of the pedestrian plan being to reduce pedestrian barriers on the sidewalk network, really we have two strategies to achieve that goal. The first is on the green side of this diagram, and that's in completing sidewalk gap projects, again, part of the five-year plan. This is creating new assets. 
The other strategy we've got to complete that goal is to maintain our existing assets, and that's represented on the, the blue side of the diagram. In those maintenance projects, you've got the sidewalk improvement program, you've got standalone ADA reconstruction projects, you've got Im improvements and repairs as part of private development, and you've also got sidewalk and ramp improvements that happen with our street maintenance program. And altogether, the, the projects you see on the, this diagram are really uh, what specifically moves the needle on that CC5 and CC11 progress indicators. Um, touching on community engagement, just wanted to mention that you know the, the, the great community engagement work that Jessica's team does during the planning process, we try to pick up again when we implement a project, and that really begins at project creation. I'm working with our subject matter experts here at the city, stakeholders, working on defining what levels of engagement are needed at what levels of a project, or different phases of a project, pardon me. And then the hope is also to put forth, put forth a standardized process for determining that project level community engagement in, in the next year. Um, in summary, investment in non-motorized projects, it can happen with standalone projects in the five-year plan. It can be included as part of projects in the capital improvement plan. Um, it can happen with private development and can also happen in maintenance projects. And we're hoping with the new accounting system that we'll be able to really more meaningfully um, report how that investment shows. But our work doesn't end here. We have additional projects in the works that are pending that are going to continue to evolve our understanding and our implementation of safe and comfortable bike and pedestrian networks for our community. We are getting ready to bring to you um, our federal uh, agreements for our Vision Zero Safety Action Plan and our RFP to hire a consultant um, to embark on that. Uh, study process that we were awarded from the federal government. We have participated with KDOT and the Vulnerable Road Users Assessment, which is part of their state highway safety plan in their initiative to understand um, high risk corridors and streets for vulnerable road users, which are bicycles and pedestrians. Um, our colleague Evan, who is on the call tonight, Evan Carenta, our ADA coordinator and his work in the ADA trans transition plan and implementation. And as I mentioned earlier in the meeting, our plan to update the Lawrence bike plan to keep us on that five-year kind of rotation of reaffirming with the community that we're on the right track in terms of implementation, reflecting the values that we've heard about their desires for safe and comfortable infrastructure. That's what we have for you this evening to talk a little bit about our process from inception. As we get through implementation, we've made a lot of progress and we believe um, we'll see that uh, coming forth in the indicators. We'd be happy to entertain any questions you may have about our work. Thank you. Any questions? Just a Jake. couple questions. One, I would be interested in just hearing a little bit more about the ADA transition plan, like where we are on that and what maybe Evan's on the call, but what's the timeline for that? Yeah, Evan, are you on the call? Can you answer that for us? Yes, I'm on. Can you see me? We see a couch. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. My camera is not working, but my, my audio seems to be. Nice um, looking couch. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a nice office. It's, it's treating me nice. So um, yeah, so Commissioner Finkeldye, um, we are currently looking at kind of some of our data and working through some of the cost projections. Um, and we hope to have um, 
an ADA draft transition plan um, in front of the commission in the next couple months where we can really kind of um, hone in on some of next steps and kind of what we're looking at, um, you know, from a data and cost projection standpoint to really figure out how we're going to move the needle, you know, and what and what that plan looks like, whether it's going to be, you know, 10, 15, 20 year plan and kind of, um, you know, what that looks like. So hopefully um, in the next couple of months, we'll be bringing that back to a uh, city commission work session. Thank you. I look forward to that as I've been watching all the 9th Street work and the ADA work going in on the sidewalks. You can, you know, as I drive by it every day, you see what a difference that makes. So appreciate that. Uh, just a quick question. I mean, it's not a big deal, but I'm really excited about what KU is doing with the, the the crossing project and the and the bike paths and the and the trails. They'll go through there and help maybe avoid 23rd and Iowa. But I noticed those aren't on now maps like as projects like in blue is there is that because they're not done or is that just just curious so this is where the the projects that you see on our map are reflective of what our plan is and that plan was done years ago so when we have the opportunity to update that plan is when we've updated those alignments and showed how they fit in the network in terms of the whole, the whole network and choices, um, those things that were done in that development process haven't reflected back to that planning process yet and the elements that come out of that in terms of on the gap, in terms of projects are stuff that's to be done and we haven't always included all the things that are private development across private property. It's really city's commitment to infrastructure as part of that five-year CIP. We can work on that. I think that's one of the things that we always come to uh, challenge with is we do a planning process and we yeah. have a plan. We have a plan and a map and things change and so we update as built and we update stuff but without going back through that public process sometimes we get discomfort about updating that without transparency of public process. Um, and so that's why you haven't seen that yet on those maps. Well, I could just, I mean, I, that makes sense. I guess, you know, I just think you know, I use the, the tunnel under, um, you know, Iowa quite a bit and when I walk campus or ride campus and I can just see that, I mean, with the new paths, getting there will be easier than, you know, going all the way down 23rd Iowa and down. I think I could see it being a major part of the, tra the bike transportation plan, you know, as you're trying to get places, you know. So anyway, I, I hope it's reflective in the new plan and how that might affect, you know, the movement of pedestrians and bikes. Appreciate appreciate the work. A question. Um, I'm not sure if this is part of the plan, but the um, brick sidewalks. Um, I don't. If I remember right, we were promised a, a, a policy document or something about brick sidewalks by the end of the year. Melinda, do you want to speak to that one? <laughs> I believe she's on the call. Yes, I would be happy to. Uh, so our brick policy um, hit a standstill last year when the individual working on it uh, left the city and we filled that position and now we're down another position. So what we decided to do in the 2024 budget is um, put some funds into our operating budget to outsource some of that work and make sure that we're able to keep going with all of our uh, planned CIP work, um, and yet at all or so, uh, we'll be looking at the end 24. Okay, um, thank you. So we're not gonna see anything in the end of this year, I take it. 2024 though, 
for sure. Having a hard time. She froze up. She, she froze. She yeah, she's she got out of it. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, yes, we got yes. a thumbs up. There, yes. there is okay. money approved in the capital improvement plan. You know, in 2025, I believe, for a construction project. In the year before that, to design that brick construction project. So we, it's there. We we need to make it happen. But that'll be. We still don't have the policy. Right. Had a repair. Yes, and that design is contingent on that policy. Okay. Got it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Any other questions? Thank you very much, Melinda. Thank you. And open up to public comment from the room. And none seen online. We got Michael. Hi, once again, Michael Allman. Um, I really appreciate the work that Jessica Mortinger has done. Um, as she very clearly pointed out, um, the level of separation is directly proportional to the, 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 the level of use. If I can get my cat out of the way. <laughs> um, unfortunately, that design consideration, you know, how many separated bikeways we put in as opposed to white striped bikeways, that, that, that doesn't seem to translate over to MSO and spending the, the money. Now, certainly there's the, the, the money that's spent for capital projects in the CIP or this five-year um, bikeway plan. Uh, that's, that's one issue, but there's a whole other uh, bucket of cash in the street maintenance program, which earlier in the meeting I pointed out that typically it's, it's just a like I said, a bucket of cash. There's no specifications when you approve that in the budget of what gets built with that. And they come back with a similar um, chart of the streets that they're going to be maintaining in any, any given year, which may or may not factor into connectivity of existing bikeways. These streets are chosen for their uh, pavement condition index, they're just anywhere scattered around town. So we're just scattering white striped bike lanes here and there that first of all are not generally usable, not safe, and they're not connected. When MSO staff selects that, they have complete discretion what kind of bikeway they'll put there if they even put one there. They're not required to. Um, that's just the time when they restripe that they might do it. That's the situation where I want to see a policy that decides what is the default bikeway for those kind of projects. Some of those projects will maybe work with a white stripe, but some will need to be separated. And there's no guidelines telling staff, they just choose their on their own. When Mr. Um, Baldwin pointed out Wakarusa, north of Bob Billings and south. South of Bob Billings, the city engineer originally had proposed a white stripe bike lane. That was the original proposal. It's not that they have a new policy and a new outlook now. Maybe they're coming around slowly, but really they were forced to change that into a separated shared use path because citizen input at the Multimodal Transportation Commission. So. Long story short, I still don't see any clear guidelines. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. 
Okay, thanks. Any other public comment on Zoom? No, Mayor. Okay, thank you. Sherry, bring it back up to the commission for discussion. Any thoughts? I do want to say, although it's slightly different than what you put in your presentation, when you click on the, on the, on the dashboard, that project for the crossing is on there. It is on the dashboard. So um, it's not in the five-year plan, so I think that's why it's different. You put two different things, but if you go to the dashboard, um, it is on there, so um, that makes sense. Um, and by the way, I, I love the dashboards, both the pedestrian and the bike. Mm -hmm. I get, you know, one of the things, we had lots of calls and comments about either what's going to be done or what's being done. Yeah. And to be able to either pull this up and tell somebody or direct somebody to it without just sending it to you guys saying, well, ask them. <laughs> you know, we can answer those questions, and I, I think it's helpful to see the progress. So I appreciate the dashboards a lot. Anybody else want to add to that? Oh, I'll just, yeah, I'll just add, talk a little bit more about the policy um, and the idea of uh, what Michael was talking about not having, not, not seeming to have a really strong, clear policy um, regarding whether it just is a default bikeway um, path, white stripe, or if it's separated. Um, could you talk a little bit more about that? Is that something? This is an issue that's not a new issue. Um, to bikeway design. It's something that we talked about with the steering committee when we did the bikeway plan development. So when we had that group of stakeholders on our steering committee who were bicyclists of all different types, um, one of the things we talked about, and when we're talking about these conventional bike lanes, oftentimes now what you're talking about in the policy, as we noted, is when we're doing street maintenance. And oftentimes the budget for street maintenance, we're not changing the curb line. So that gives us the option in terms of, and what they've explored is saying, you may have the option to stripe bike lanes, a conventional bike lane, or do nothing. And when we asked the steering committee from the Lawrence Bikes Plan, would you rather have a white stripe with a conventional bike lane or do nothing, they said, we would rather do something rather than nothing. So it depends who you ask. Got it. Secondly, then when, this is where I think you should speak about, or maybe Dave can get back on and speak. So as part of the policy development that was recently talked through with the Multimodal Transportation Commission, they also entertained the idea of out, uh, basically banning a conventional bike lane. And they chose not to do that because, as Dave was saying, they wanted the option to have a context-sensitive discussion about the appropriateness in some cases to use a white stripe conventional bike lane, maybe when there's an option to remove parking and do that, or when there's context in the street to do that. So they discussed that concept and idea, the perspective of some people that that is not as safe as it could be as a, as a buffered bike lane or as a protected cycle track. It depends, it depends who you ask. The reality is within that maintenance budget, often the option is do a conventional bike lane and stripe that or do nothing. And when those options have been presented to the Multimodal Transportation Commission, they have chosen and recommended to, to 
do a conventional striped bike lane. And so those, that has been in the discussion for many years. Um, and there is a conflict. There is a conflict of values between different types of cyclists in that space. And it hasn't been resolved. It's going to need to be a topic that we talk about in the bikeway plan update because it is something that I think is not going away in terms of. But it really matters who you ask. It depends what type of cyclist you ask in terms of what you do. It also matters is it you do that or you do nothing. If you have a maintenance project and you're going in and reconstructing the roadway because of pavement condition and now you could choose to either remove parking or you have enough lane width to stripe a conventional bike lane, it's the, when the choice comes in that within the budget, you can either do one or the other. That's where those hard decisions lie. And at this point in time, the recommendation of the Multimodal Transportation Commission was not to remove that as an option and to have a policy where it outlawed it entirely. Okay, thank you, okay. Jessica, thank you. Okay, anything else before we move on? Okay, thank you very much for your presentations and the work you're doing on this. Thank you. So we're on to the regular agenda items. Does anybody want a break, a little break? Sure. Um, let's do five minutes, okay? We don't, don't have a lot in the room. We're on to a regular agenda item number one, which is to consider approving a text amendment to chapter 20 of the City of Lawrence Code to modify standards pertain pertaining to the provision of two detached dwellings on one lot when permanently restricted to affordable dwelling units initiated by City Commission June 20th, 2023, and adopt on first reading this ordinance. Good evening, Commissioners. I'm Mary Miller, planner, and I will be sharing my screen if all goes well. And as you mentioned, this is a text amendment related to affordable housing. It was initiated by the city commission at the request of tenants to homeowners. They had discovered there were quite a few challenges to finding lots based on the standards that were in the existing ordinance. And so we were directed to try to find some flexibility and make some changes to the regulations. Uh, staff tried to make as minimal changes as possible since we are doing the rewrite of the development code. Uh, but then the planning commission um, did a recommend an increased change, which I'll discuss as I go through this. The existing regulations were adopted in 2019, and they have several criteria. You're limited to only two detached dwellings on a lot in a RS district if both are permanently affordable, and that's an agreement that has to be recorded. A parking must be provided as required by code. Each dwelling has to have separate utilities and services. Non-conforming lots are prohibited. So um, the regulations have one statement that says a lot that's non-conforming by area may not have the two dwellings. It also notes that the lot dimensions in Article 6 shall apply, which means variances aren't allowed. So any non-conforming lot is not eligible. And then it requires that any lot in RS5 must have SUP approval. And at the time, the thought was that RS5 is a small lot district. It allows lots as small as 5,000 square feet. And so it made sense for that small lot to have special requirements. But as we've gone through and researched that district, it doesn't um, require them to have small lots. So we have, we have lots that are over 10,000 square feet or 20,000 square feet in that district. And they all have to have SUP approval just because they're in the RS5 district. So one of the changes we wanted to make was to take away putting the 
requirement for an SUP on a specific zoning district and putting it on the size of a lot instead. Because the idea was if you're IS-5, you're less than 7,000 square feet, and that's where the SUP would come in. So when we look at the non-conforming lots, as I mentioned, the regulations do not allow those to be developed with detached dwellings. Um, and a non-conforming lot is a lot that was developed in accordance with the regulations at the time, but no longer complies due to a change in the regulations. And this graph is from the staff report, and it shows how the regulations have changed throughout time. In 1927, when we did our first zoning regulations, we required a minimum lot area of 5,000 square feet. And that was increased in 1949 to 6,000. And in 1966, it was divided into 10,000 or 7,000. So technically, in 1966, if you develop to the minimum standards, any lot that was developed previously to the minimum standards is then non-conforming. And in 2006, the zoning districts were revised. RS-5 was created to capture some of those earlier properties, but not all of those converted over to the RS-5 district. So we do have non-conforming lots in every district that currently is prohibited from developing with these two detached dwellings. In the non-conforming section, Article 15 of the Development Code, um, it has special provisions for non-conforming lots. It notes that they can be used for any lot allowed in the district unless the lot is just too narrow to allow for the use and a driveway. So you have to at least be able to accommodate a driveway. There are setback exemption provisions in this article. They're very small changes that you are allowed to modify the setbacks to accommodate development on non-conforming lots. Um, if you're not able to meet those setback um, kind of reductions, then you would have to go through the variance process. And a variance to so the Board of Zoning Appeals has five criteria. They're pretty cr strict criteria in order to get a variance. And then this article notes that development shall comply with the building and impervious surface coverage standards of the district, which means variances are not possible from those. And as we look at the dimensional standards throughout time, they were added in 2006. Before then, we didn't have those. And the intent is that you allow or you require a certain percentage of a lot to remain open space. So this helps maintain that residential character. You don't have a lot that's 90% buildings or 100% pavement. And that helps maintain the green space in a neighborhood. So even if you have a non-conforming lot, you have to have this percentage of green space or this percentage of open space which is one of the reasons we felt comfortable allowing development on non-conforming lots. Um, you still have to have the building open space. You have to provide the setbacks with those minor reductions that are allowed or go through the variance. So we feel that allowing development on non-conforming lots um, would be possible and would still maintain the character of the neighborhood. I'm looking at non-conforming lots by area, and this information was taken from the staff report. In the RS-5 district, there are 157 lots with less than 5,000 square feet, and many of these are just small remnant parcels that couldn't be developed on at all. These would not be developable either, they're just prohibited, they would not be developable because they're under 5,000 square feet. They're non-conforming lots. With the new regulations, they might be able to be developable if they had a special use permit approval. So you could look at it, if it happened to be 4,900 square feet and you're able to meet the setbacks and maintain that open space criteria and you have the neighborhood input through the public hearing process, then it would be possible to develop on some of these. 
in RS7, um, non-conforming lots due to area. There's 317 lots. Um, development on this is currently prohibited. And with the staff recommendation, we had recommended that anything less than 7,000 square feet would take a SUP because, again, we were looking at the areas um, allowed by the zoning districts. We talked with tenants to homeowners as they were the party interested in this amendment to see what they thought of our proposal. And they indicated they'd like to see it further reduced. And their reasoning was we have a RS3 zoning district which allows residential development on 3,000 square foot lots. And they thought based on that, two, two dwellings should be able to be on 6,000 square feet, theoretically. And so their proposal was to allow development on 6,000 square feet, provided you meet the requirements, without a SUP. Anything less than 6,000 square feet would require the special use permit process. And so this went through, and this is the um, provision that the Planning Commission included in their recommendation, was to go with the 6,000 square feet. Um, in the RS5, as I mentioned, we have 157 lots that are less than 5,000. These would be opened up. They, perhaps they could be developed with the SUP. Uh, we have 2,341 lots between 5,000 to 7,000 square feet. Currently, these would all take a special use permit. Um, with the Planning Commission recommendation to switch it to 6,000, then we'd be looking at only things that are under 6,000 square feet would take a special use permit. And between 5,000 to 6,000, there's 1,089 lots. So those would still require a special use permit. Um, between 6,000 and 7,000, that's 1,252 that uh, would be able to be processed just with a building permit. So it would loosen up the amount of lots and the process that would be required. Um, in RS7, as I mentioned, we have 317 lots that cannot be developed on today because they're non-conforming. These would be allowed with a um, SUP. 65 of those are less than 6,000, so even with the Planning Commission recommendation, uh, those would still require a special use permit. In RS10, we have 103 lots that have less than 10,000 square feet, so those have development prohibited. And in um, RS20, we have 12 lots with less than 20,000 square feet. Um, none of these have less than 7,000 square feet. So this would open these up to development with building permits as they have adequate area. Um, this just tries to demonstrate the number of lots that would be allowed. It would be 1,504 lots that uh, would require a special use permit. There's 1,252 between 6,000 and 7,000. Um, they take a special use permit now. Those would be moved to a building permit. And 252 in the RS5 district, prohibited now, um, would just be allowed with a building permit. And so the attachment that showed the parcel size per each zoning district was very useful in this as we realized that our districts do not set a maximum. Um, they tell you pretty much how small a lot can be, but you don't have any information on how large lots are. There were some other changes in this amendment, and these were house cleaning changes. Um, at the beginning of the section 20-508, which just talks about detached dwellings in the RM and the RS district, um, the sentence that um, at the bottom is proposed to be deleted as it only applies to RS districts. You can have more than one detached dwelling on a multi-dwelling lot without them needing to be detached or affordable. And so that sentence is uh, being stricken, or is proposed to be stricken. 
And then this goes through the changes we're recommending. Um, right now there are two sections, one for RS7, 10, and 20, and then one for RS5. Uh, we're combining these, including RS5 with the other districts, because we're only looking at the 6,000 square foot area and not what zoning district it is in. On um, subsection three, we're striking the uh, recommending this section that says all standards of Article Six of this chapter shall apply. Striking that because that is one that requires um, the minimum lot width and lot frontage, or else it's prohibited. So that non-conforming lots, whether by area, which is being removed in Article Five, um, taking out that, we're replacing that with noting that development of non-conforming lots is subject to the standards of um, Section 20-1504 that I mentioned, uh, that you can have the minor reductions and setbacks, but you have to comply with the building and impervious surface coverage. And Subsection Six is a. Uh, requiring that any develop, development in any lot with less than 6,000 square feet is permitted only with approval of a special use permit. And that was the change that the Planning Commission recommended. Um, there are no changes to the other three sections here. And then um, there is another change being recommended, and that is in section 20-202, which is regarding the RS single dwelling residential district. It refers to this section, 20-508, but incorrectly listed as 20-513, so it's just a correction of that citation. Um, this change does meet the criteria. It's a, a challenge of an existing condition in that we thought the regulations we made were going to open up lots for this kind of development, but not knowing that there were so many non-conforming lots, um, we actually didn't open it up as much as we thought we did. Uh, the Planning Commission did recommend of six to three to forward this to you with the recommendation for approval. Um, those who dissented were concerned with changing the area requirement from 7,000 to 6,000. Staff has no concerns with that. We were only trying to be conservative and try to minimize the changes we were making. And you might notice in the ordinance there are um, two other changes. When the Planning Commission discussed this, they had questions, what do we mean by affordable? And um, so we added that, we just clarify that we're referring to the affordable as defined in the development code. And then they had questions, what do we mean by permanently affordable? And so we did clarify that's 99 years. And so that just provides that clarity. Since there was a lot of confusion at the Planning Commission meeting, we wanted to make sure that was clear. And so that concludes my um, presentation. There is no applicant um, as you initiated this, but I'll be happy to answer questions if you have any. Thank you, Mary. Thank you. Any questions? Anybody? Oh, I lost Commissioner Sellers. There she is. Okay, if not, um, we'll open it up to the room for questions. Since nobody's here, well, how about on Zoom? No, Mayor. Okay, bring it back to the commission for discussion. Any comments? Discussion? Say a couple things. Um, one, Mary, thanks for you. We you report and working on this and um, you know I do think it's interesting the, the number of non-conforming lots and we're about to make a whole nother big set of changes um, which in theory could make more non-conforming lots but I do think with the direction we're going it'll actually bring some lots back into conformance that were non-conforming as we change some of the minimum requirements 
Um, we'll see that. I don't. I don't know that to be sure. We're just now starting to see module two, but um, you know, certainly the goal of of you know you don't try to create non-conforming lots. So, um, but I do think this is an important change um, as we move forward, as we wait to get to the new code. Um, certainly, as Mary said there at the end, you know we initiate the text amendment so we could move forward with some of our affordable housing challenges and um, we didn't quite open up as many lots as we thought and certainly 10 homeowners um, ended up with some lots that um, they thought they could build on and they can for various reasons um, because of this and, and we'll fix that. So um, I think this is a good amendment um, and I also agree with the planning commission change of the 6,000 square feet. I think that you know, opens it up a little bit more and keeps it consistent with the RS3 and frankly allows some of those to move projects possibly to move through quicker um, and with less cost without the SUP process. So I support um, this amendment along with the 6,000 square feet that the Planning Commission inserted. Uh, yeah, I would concur. I support the amendment along with the 6,000 foot provision uh, for the reasons that Commissioner Finkeldye out, just outlined. Um, I think it uh, you know, prevents us a great opportunity to go ahead and uh, um, uh, for development in terms of uh, addressing our housing shortage. So. Anything? Oh, go ahead. Nope. Commissioner Sellers, nothing? I think the only thing I would add, not even add, it's been discussed, is I, I like the non-conforming bringing those into the possibility for for higher density, and I really appreciate that very much. And the square footage, I agree with that on the 6,000. I think it's fine. So thank you very much. I think Commissioner Sellers does have some. Oh, she does? Okay, she did. Got it. Thank you. Commissioner Sellers. I wasn't sure if you were doing everyone in City Hall and then doing online later. So I wasn't sure if you're calling on me or just looking for me. But no, I think to just to echo the sentiments of having this text amendment and what it does and open up opens up the um, availability for tenants to homeowners or anyone else that's interested in doing affordable and permanent affordable housing in our community, the nimbleness to do that and how that following this path and having that discussion, which I know is something that Rebecca has shared for many years, um, navigating that space in order for us to do it. I think the timing has been impeccable and it'll only help us in guiding continuous conversations around some of the nuances that have to be cited and acknowledged when addressing um, affordable housing and how to navigate that in a community. Because it's not as traditional or, or linear as it would be for t for typical market housing um and it not that it deserves it's a difference or special consideration but i think it it really speaks to the nuance of creating accessible affordable housing and, it, and this text amendment is testament of that so i do appreciate um rebecca continuously bringing it to the attention of the commission and having those discussions and us seeing something go from from thought to from concept thought to actual fruition so i do appreciate that process and staff working um, with her and the commission on that okay if there's nothing else then ask for a motion 
I move to approve text amendment TA 23-00227 for section 20-508 of the Land Development Code, revising the standards for development of two permanently affordable detached dwellings on one lot in the RS5, RS7, RS10, and RS20 districts, and a minor housekeeping change to section 20-202, which had the incorrect code citation to this section. And adopt on first reading ordinance number 10008 and ordinance number 10009. Second. I have a first and a second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? Passes five to zero. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. On to commission items. Any commissioner have any items they want to bring up? I got one. Um, yeah, I got one. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, this week is Digital Inclusion Week, and uh, from October 2nd to October 6th. Uh, if anybody had any, want any further information, uh, go to the Kansas Office of Broadband under the Kansas Department of Commerce. And especially on October 6th, uh, will be affordable. The affordable connectivity program would be will be available. So, um, if people wanted more information about that, I suggest go ahead and looking at it. So, um, they're putting out a lot of great things this week and a lot of great information for people to to increase the access broadband for folks that might not otherwise have that access. Good. Any other commissioners? Thank you. Nothing. Commissioner Sellers, you got your any any commission items for you? No, I just wanted you guys to hear me breathe. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> okay. If not, we'll um, go on to the meet um, calendar. Excuse me. Any calendar oh, items? Mayor, I don't have a question in regards to the calendar, and I know we have limited staff here, but I just wanted to note on the calendar for November, um, I know um, Vice Mayor and myself are attending the NLC City Summit, and it starts on Wednesday, uh, but I do believe I'm flying out on Tuesday and so I'm not sure with everyone else's flight situation if we need to if Sherry if that is starred or asterisk to see whether or not we're actually meeting that day uh, well I, I will take a look at that so just wanted to make note of that as arrangements are being made so knowing that two commissioners will not be in person and how that might impact our meeting. That's all. Thank you for that. Any other, any, any other calendar items? I was just thinking of that while looking at it. Maybe I'm wrong. I, I thought sometimes we moved that Thanksgiving meeting the week. The 21st is the week of Thanksgiving. That we sometimes move that to the last Tuesday to avoid the Thanksgiving week. Uh, not to my. Okay. Yeah, I know. I don't recall. That's that. fine. I just uh, somebody's no, at my mind. We don't want to do that. Nice try. <laughs> it works for me. I'll be here. Yeah. It'll get me out of driving to the airport to pick up my daughter. <laughs> I'll have to commission me to avoid. Okay. Sounds good. Okay. We're done with commission items or our calendar items. Excuse me. On to the final. Move to adjourn. Second. First and a second. All in favor? Aye. 
Nay. Opposed? <laughs> nay. Passes four to one. All right. See you. Have a good night, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.